Welcome to Season 2 of the Practicing Presence Podcast, where spiritual formation is fueled through a variety of practices rather than a single prescriptive time of devotion, where we discuss different spiritual practices that help us be more present with God, others, and ourselves. What's going on, practitioners? What's up, friends? How we doing? Well, uh, we are going to continue talking about Visio Divina. Uh... Last week we talked about art um, and practicing Visio Divina with art. Today, I think we want to have a conversation about uh, practicing Visio Divina with architecture. Yes, we do. And there's lots that we could say on this, but in order to best I can grab your attention about why this conversation matters, I want to remind you about Notre Dame. Listener, uh, I have never been fortunate enough to see it. You got to see it. Yeah. And there was a day, a very sad day, in which Notre Dame caught fire. Yeah. Began to burn. And for some reason, even in a secular world that we now live in, Mm-hmm. That was breaking news. Yeah. And everyone was concerned. Yeah. Everyone looked. The people around it that never gave it a second look in their secular worldview mm-hmm. stopped and cried as its flame like as it as its blaze grew. It's a it was a cultural icon in Paris, um, which you I mean, might still say, is, which right. you might say, Paris is the hub of secularism. Maybe, um, but it was a, it's a cultural icon that has survived thousands of years, yeah. um, and is featured in so many other works of art. So many other stories. Not to mention all the junk it contained. Yeah. Um, all the beautiful relics and and things. Like, yeah, no, that was a very sad thing. Um, and so, yeah, when, when you have something that is that powerful and that um, appreciated and loved, even by a secular community... It catches fire. Yeah, man. It's going to suck. Because for some reason, there's something divinely beautiful about them. Mm-hmm. And that's true for lots of architecture. Um, yeah. The Bible's full of them. The tabernacle is the first architectural thing Structure, structure that houses God in the Old Testament. And it's a big tent, and they move it around as they're nomads. Yep. Um, It's an expensive tent, but it's a big tent. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's very specific 
yeah. and how it has to be built and how big things have to be and where things need to be positioned and what it smells like in there and all these things. And then that evolves into the temple. You get Solomon building the temple mm-hmm. around 1100 or so. 1050, 1100, somewhere around there. David's at 1,000. We can confidently put David's reign at 1,000 BC. So somewhere shortly after that, Solomon builds the temple. And it equally is specifically designed. Mm -hmm. And it's immaculate beauty. Yeah. Um, Made of the best materials, the finest that the world knows. Um, It is the definition of... Of magnificent. Yeah. And then the Babylonians come in and destroy it. Yeah. 750 BC, roughly. They got it for 200 years. The most magnificent temple the world had ever known. Yeah. Destroyed. Babylonian captivity. It's not until Ezra and Nehemiah, some you know, couple hundred years later, that they get to build another one. And it too is specifically designed. And there's a whole process of it being built. And that process is recorded in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah yeah. of the Old Testament. And that's the temple that Jesus worships in. That's the temple that Jesus is tried in. Yeah. In the city where Jesus is crucified. Um, and some 40 years, roughly, after Jesus is crucified in that temple, the Emperor Nero of the Roman Empire in AD 70 burnt that one to the ground, too. Mm-hmm. He was fed up with these Jews and burnt it to the ground. And that temple today, the site of that temple, has been replaced with another temple. Mm-hmm. Clayton, do you know the name of that temple? Uh, I don't. The Dome of the Rock. Ah. It's a Palestinian Muslim temple. Mm-hmm. And they will continue to fight. Israel and Palestine will continue to fight over that land forever. Yeah. Because it just seems ingrained in them. And so there's your architecture of the Bible. But then if you were going to talk about holy architecture, around the 4th century B.C., we begin to have church buildings pop up. Mm-hmm. And this was not uncommon. Right. Other religions had their church buildings, and even Judaism had synagogues, which were, excuse me, other meeting places outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Right. So around the fourth century, we begin to get church buildings. The first one is in Philippi. The first one we have record of yeah. was in Philippi in the fourth century. And they... Well, Clayton, what would you suspect 
that a church building looked like in the fourth century? What do you think they would have thought valuable for their architecture? Um, probably something very similar to um, the tabernacle. Um, but I, I can't, I don't know if I would say that like I, I fully understand um, what they would think is valuable because it would be a, what's available to them. Well, that's one of the values. Yeah. Uh, they're not super special as far as like construction. Yeah. Um, they're just an ancient building. Mm-hmm. Now, they are beautiful. Yeah. And they communicate art and beauty, but it's all cheaply done. Right. It's done by the people that live there. Now, it's well done. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not half-assed. It actually looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so they did it well, but it's done pretty cheap. I mean, these are unoppressed people. They don't have a lot of money. Yeah. And this doesn't happen until after Constantine. Right. When Constantine kind of turns everybody onto the Christian religion, and then it becomes popular to do so, to be a Christian. And so then the buildings... Keep coming. Mm -hmm. Then you get the Catholic Church, you know, continuing on, and the Greek Orthodox, and they're building their big buildings and doing their things. And then you get to the Protestant Reformation. Up to this point, they all look about the same. Big stone buildings, Mm chapel-like. Stained glass windows. The Reformation... We've got John Calvin and Martin Luther and Zwingli and all these guys popping up. And they decide that the architecture matters. Yeah. And they point to person, they point to Bible verses for the tabernacle, for the temple, how it had to be done this way. That the architecture matters. And they begin to design their buildings in such a way that not only does what you see with your eyes Mm -hmm. invoke certain things. This is also why in the Renaissance they painted on the ceilings. Because it is certainly about what your eyes see and invoke about God. Mm -hmm. They are trying to create an atmosphere in which you are going to meet the divine. So your eyes are certainly a part of that. But also the way in which... You conduct yourself through this thing matters Mm -hmm. as well. And so some of the first earliest Reformation churches had the pews, Mm. very common. But if you go into old chapels, Clayton, where's the speaking booth? Uh, It's not in the center. It's off to one side. Mm -hmm. Why? Why? Because it's not the important piece. Ah, yes. It's not the important piece. What is the important piece? Experiencing the divine. And how do you do that? What is done right down front in the middle? Um, confession. Um, or, and? Uh, the Eucharist. Communion. Um, yeah. 
confession and communion. Those are the central pieces of an ancient Catholic expression of faith. Yeah. You do the communal elements of faith in the center because that is the center of the church. Right. Protestant Reformation didn't like that shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They decided, because of Martin Luther, sola scriptura, scripture alone. Yeah. And so you get this change, this shift, that the Bible becomes the center focus. Yeah. And so they put the pulpit, the speaking platform, right in the middle. And it was always elevated. Yeah. Because that's how you project in the ancient world, right? You don't have a microphone, so you elevate so sound carries. Uh, and you create the buildings and such that they project sound. Mm-hmm. So you elevate for speaking and visual, like being able to see. But now you move it to the middle. But you can't forsake the beauty of communion. Right. And so you put that, because it's a communal element, yeah. on the laity floor mm-hmm. in the middle. Right, because we still have to make scripture and the proclamation of the spoken word the most important thing. Right. Also, Clayton, in ancient cathedrals, where did the choir sit? Up back behind you. Ah, why? Uh, well, one, because, you know, sound carries. Projection, yeah. yes. Um, but also, I think, because they don't want you focusing on the people that are standing up there singing. Because they want you singing. Yeah. And if you are looking at other people singing, you're less likely to sing. Mm-hmm. And so, because it is the communal choir, yeah. they put you in the back. Yeah. Where you are a together community singing. Mm-hmm. It's not a performance. Right. Those are two very unique things about church architecture that I think are lost. Yeah. Um, they're still doing the beauty, right? There's still art on the walls. There's still stained glass windows. There's still all those things. But then you get this thing called the professionalization of ministry. This happens around the turn of the 19th century. Sorry, around the, the turn of, yeah, the 19th century. And... They start changing the way they do some things. Mm -hmm. And it becomes, the reason is because they start expecting as professionalism rises, you start getting people going to college and getting degrees and doing all these things and having these jobs and driving these cars with suits and trying to live this middle-class lifestyle. Yeah. After the Industrial Revolution, as you begin to see this change happen, They want the same out of their preachers. Preachers are no longer just one among us. Mm -hmm. They're now something different. They're not something different. This is a profession and you got to be good at it. Yeah. And so that changes things because then we start to throw money at a problem. Right. And when you start throwing money at a problem to hire people to do a job that was positioned in the community to do, Mm -hmm. that changes the way your church building looks. Sure. And so what happens? Because this is now a profession, you have job performance. And how does a businessman who's on your church board judge your job performance? By growth. Mm -hmm. 
specifically in people and revenues. Yeah. And so the pastors change what it means to be a pastor and what it looks like to have an architectural building that promotes gospel community. They now have a performance review that they have to pass to keep yeah. their job. And so they change it to a performance. It starts to look like a stage. Mm -hmm. We move the choir out of the back. We put them up front. We yep. get rid of that pulpit because that's not how people do it, right? Yep. Um, they walk and talk, and they're energetic, and they're boisterous, and they're charismatic, and they do all these things. And then people want to come hear them talk. Mm-hmm. So we build bigger buildings. And then it no longer is about pews and beauty and functionality of carrying Bibles and opening Bibles or any of that. It becomes how many sardines can I cram in a can yeah. that can hear the most of me speak? Mm -hmm. And so you get to the development of auditorium seating. And unfortunately... We go through secularism and we go through fundamentalism and the two together make low free church evangelicals against art and iconography. Yep. And so now you literally just walk into an auditorium building mm -hmm. with a big stage, elevated people, and nobody on the laity, nobody on that ground floor ever touches that stage because it's a performance. Mm -hmm. Got to do what we need to do to get the most people so that we can grow and meet the performance review. Yep. And so what has happened is unfortunately our churches have lost the beauty of architecture, which in turn has created it because we've modeled them to look exactly like our office buildings. They yeah. don't look any different. We treat them no different. It's one more thing on my list of to-dos that I have to get done on Sunday before I can go home and eat lunch and watch the football game. Yep. There's your history of church architecture. Yeah, and you are correct um, that we are now in a place where we have stripped the beauty out of the church experience. Um, but there is something that um, does end up happening with, um, with being able to see the architecture of a church. Um, one thing it does for me, I don't know if this is true for everyone, but like for the longest time before I started deconstructing and all the things, it became comfortable. It became safe. And like seeing the architecture, I now feel safe. Um, and I feel like that can happen in your home too. Um, appreciating the architecture of your own home. Yeah, no, like understood. Um, homes are not designed the best these days. Um, however... I do think that there is something to the the idea of being able to look at your home and appreciate the beauty of the thing in front of you as a divine gift, um, but also as divine safety. Um, 
But overall, um, architecture, great way to practice Visio Divina. Um, and next week, I think we're going to venture a conversation about the beauty of the human body. Thanks for listening to the Practicing Presence podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.